the end. There it is. So I, I'm, not, I'm just going to zip it there and not speak about all the other mess. But the Bible is very clear and we should be too. We're Christian. That means we're multicultural. Anything unmulticultural is anti-Christian and anti-God. So there you go. So now for the life of David, which I actually will show you today is quite, quite multicultural. In fact, his uh, great-grandma was Ruth the Moabitess. That's exactly right. So anyways, but here's the life of David. Last week, uh, Pastor David, our executive pastor here, showed you uh, this slide, which is pretty cool. He showed how David's life... Uh, had all these sort of ups and downs, a zigzag, if you will. It starts out, you know, with him as a shepherd, and God calls him from the field, and he's anointed by Samuel to be the someday king. He kills Goliath, which is usually what everyone associates him with, but that's really pretty early and pretty small in his life. And then he runs from Saul, so things are going down. He spares Saul's life, looking up a little his best bud, Jonathan, dies, not so great. Saul dies, not so great. But then he becomes king of his own clan, so he's anointed a second time. That's Judah. Oh, we're getting a little better. And then a third time he's anointed, and now he's the king of all of Israel. You've just blitzed through 1 Samuel, basically. Now we're transitioning into 2 Samuel. He's the king of all of Israel. The, the nation is united, basically, in full force for the first time ever under this guy, Things are looking up. And so you're talking about the life of David now. We'll show the second slide. You're kind of at the pinnacle of that last point. He's king of Israel. And then he does a couple things. One is he brings the Ark of the Covenant into the capital, the new capital. It wouldn't have been the capital until he conquered it. But the new capital of Jerusalem. He conquers the city. He makes it its capital. He brings in the Ark of the Covenant. Everybody's ready to worship God. And then God comes in a big way in 2 Samuel 7 and makes this eternal covenant or promise to David. He says, David, I'm going to do this. I am going to do this regardless of what you do. I'm going to do this. He blesses David like you wouldn't believe, promises him an eternal king will reign forever and ever on his throne. The best promise a guy could get. And then David basically has this undefeated streak. Like he's like 50 and 0, right? Like he's a perfect season, perfect record. Anybody who comes to fight him, whether Moabite, Syrian, Zoabite, Philistine, Ammonite, Edomite, or any other ite, they all lose to King David. So he has this huge string of victories, of military victories. So he's just cleaning house left and right. And then after that, it spells out in chapter 9 that not only has he cleaned house, basically defeated all his enemies, everybody's sitting at home just enjoying, we're still back on that other slide. Um, we're, everybody, this is the top of the peak. Everybody is still sitting at home and just enjoying all this peace and prosperity that he bring. You know, the economy's doing good. Uh, there's no attack from outside. We're being fruitful and multiplying. Everything's going well. You have true shalom here. This is what the Bible envisions with a messianic king, one who follows after God's own heart. He's obeying God, and God is blessing him, and things are going well. And everybody's like, sweet. And from that pinnacle, from the highest he's ever, 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 ever been, he takes his biggest dip, just boom, next day falls to the bottom of the pit with Bathsheba. 
And this is way deeper than Saul and Jonathan and all this other stuff. I mean, he goes from the height to the height down to the depth of the depth with his relationship with her. Everything now after 2 Samuel 11 shows this really miserable life experience that David has. And you begin to question, you know, hey, there's these promises back in 2 Samuel 7 about God blessing him and a throne forever. And now all of a sudden it looks like he's going to lose his throne. Everything's messed up. He is on the losing team in a major, major way. What is going to happen? 2 Samuel chapter 12. I don't think I have a slide of this. I'm just going to read it to you. This is what the prophet Nathan says. All this is happening to you, David, basically because you despise the word of the Lord. Because you sinned with Bathsheba. Now, here's the promise to you. The sword will never depart from your house. Since you killed her husband by the sword, you will now experience the same thing that he did. It won't be you, but it's going to be everybody in your house, your sons, your daughters, your brothers, your sisters. Everybody's going to be fighting. And you're going to take the brunt of it. The sword is never, ever going to leave your home. It's an incredible, incredible thing that we have to realize at this point. As Pastor David expressed last week, yes, God forgave him. Did God forgive David? Absolutely. God forgave him in every way. But did his life instantly get rosy again and all of a sudden they're back up to peace and shalom? No way. He still experiences all the consequences of his sins. Even though God forgave him unconditionally, unilaterally, you're forgiven, he still gets to walk in it for a while. And this is just the way it is. It's the way it is with you and me and everybody else. You know, God will forgive you unconditionally, but if you accidentally cut off your arm with a chainsaw, (laughs) he may not put your arm back on again, right? You're going to have to suffer that consequence, such as the case with David and Bathsheba. Look, God forgives him, but he says, David, now you're going to experience, you're going to get to pay for it. Here we go. And so from Bathsheba, you can actually see on this slide, that's not the bottom yet. That's not the very bottom at all. In fact, even though it seemed low, it's going to get lower and lower and lower, all the way to the point where they're in his own family, is rape, incest, murder, mutiny, and all the like. I mean, this makes Judge Judy look tame. This is not good stuff. So here is David, and he's just going down, 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 down. Let me show you in a um, family tree sort of way what exactly happened. I think we have a slide of this in 2 Samuel chapter 13. This is a picture of Absalom's family. Um, if we can skip down a couple of slides, that would be great. What happens is in that uh, time period, uh, the kings took multiple wives. Now, God had forbidden this in Deuteronomy, but... Um, they still participated in some of the sins of their culture anyways. And so this is what ended up happening. Um, 2 Samuel 13, Absalom's family tree. Um, This is, so Absalom is David's firstborn son. Okay, so just start with that. David's firstborn son is this guy named Absalom. And if you go to the very left, I know you can't read all these names because, I mean, this is just like, (laughs) this is, old school family trees. They're all over the place. But on the very left is David and his first wife, Maka. And below them, so it's my left. Yes, your left too. All right. So um, 
below them is Absalom and Tamar. So there's two children of this husband and wife. Now, what the Bible tells us is both Tamar and Absalom were extremely physically attractive, good-looking folks. Absalom had this long, beautiful, amazing, flowing hair, and Tamar was attractive in every way that you imagine a woman to be attractive. They were good-looking folks. So it tells me, hey, it's the king, King David. He wants to pick a trophy wife, right? So he's not necessarily looking for a godly wife or whatever else. He's picking a trophy wife. So he must have picked this incredibly beautiful woman named Maka. He has two beautiful children. Now, in our culture, we'd say, wow, sweet, he's got the beautiful kids. <laughs> Is physical beauty the only thing you should be after? What does it get these people? <laughs> Wait and see. Uh, Tamar, uh, the girl in, uh, in dark pink there, uh, she is very attractive. In fact, she's so attractive that her half-brother can't resist her. And so what you see is the guy that's kind of faded out. His name is Amnon, and the reason he's faded out is because he gets murdered. But he is the son of David and the next lady over, that's Ahinoam. And then there's Bathsheba, and you keep going to the right, there's five additional wives. So there's all kinds of wives. There's concubines, there's children, there's sons, because he's the king and he's doing whatever he wants. He's not listening to anybody else, but it doesn't go well for him. And one of the first incidences that shows this is in this Absalom, Tamar, and Amnon thing. And essentially what happens is this, is Amnon, the half-brother, so same dad, different moms, is super-duper attracted to Tamar. And he decides, you know, i got to have her. And he doesn't, and this is a rated G or, or PG-13 version, he doesn't ask permission from her mom or her dad or from her or anybody else, and he takes her. And it's a horrible thing. It embarrasses her. It embarrasses her family. It makes a big mess. And there's her brother Absalom. Now, if your brother and your sister just was uh, violated, you would probably feel a lot like he did. But instead of going through the right judicial channels to do so, he, he takes matters into his own hand. And you'll begin to see his character early on. He doesn't just immediately go and confront this guy. Instead, he sits back quietly and begins to plot. He's like, All right, I know what we're going to do. This will come back on you. And so the Bible specifies specifically that it was two years later, two years later, that Absalom throws a big feast where he's got all his brothers away from the protection of their father. And then basically he has his servants knife this guy in the back as, um, you know, vengeance upon his sister. Now, of course, if you're the father and one of your sons kills the other, <laughs> you're not in a very good way. I mean, what do you do? You love both sons, right? But how do you fix that. I mean, the death penalty, what are you going to do? Kill your other son? David's in a bad spot. He doesn't know what to do. And so essentially he banishes, or Absalom kind of banishes himself. He runs into exile. But then David's like, well, you've exiled yourself, so be exiled. He still loves him. And the text specifically says that he longed, that David longed to be reunited to his son. But he didn't really feel like there's anything he could do because one son murdered the other. If I bring him back, then I have to kill him too. What do I do? It's a mess. So eventually, David's 
general convinces David to let his son Absalom come back. He lets him come back, but he never speaks to him. So are they reconciled? Of course not. <laughs> you know, they're living in the same house, but they're not, not literally, but in the same area, but they're not talking to each other. That's no reconciliation. That's just like, okay, hold your fire. You know, here's a temporary ceasefire, a peace treaty or truce or whatever, but we still, we're not good. We walk by each other in the hallway and we kind of look the other way or we pretend not to make eye contact or when we're not around them, we might, you know, whisper a dirty word to somebody else or whatever. We're not reconciled. We can kind of be in the same area together, but there's still something between us and we're just kind of holding it back. What's up? Well, you've seen this happen before, right? I mean, maybe not the murder thing, but there's relationships in your life that you know at this point are not reconciled. (laughs) I'm guessing. What do you do? Well, David just lets it go and tries to ignore it, which is what a lot of us do. But let's see as we pursue this story how that works. David's just going to say, okay, this is the way things are going to be. Well, Absalom, his son, doesn't really appreciate it. In 2 Samuel chapter 15, here's how things develop. It says this, after this, this long you know, event with Tamar and Amnon and exile and now return, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses. He's back in town now. And the first thing he does is gets a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. Who does that? <laughs> what a jump calling out how great he is. Absalom used to rise early, and then he'd stand beside the way of the gate. This is like the, the downtown area, the farmer's market, the courthouse, the square, whatever. And when any man had a dispute to come before the king in judgment, Absalom would stop him and call out and say, Hey, what city are you from? When that person answered, Your servant is of such and such, Absalom would say to him, Oh, man, you are so right. Everything you're saying is right. In fact, your claims are good and right, but ah, there's no man designated by the king to hear you. Sorry. Well, I don't know. Man, if I were judge, if I were judge, then everyone with a valid dispute or claim just like you might come to me and I would give them justice. <laughs> Boy, if you'd make me king, things would be a lot better. Whenever a man came near then to bow down or pay homage to him, say, oh, no, 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 hold on. He'd take his hand and kiss him. Absalom did this to all of Israel who came to the king, not to Absalom, but to the king for judgment. And Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. Look at this, just like the two-year thing, he does this for four years. At the end of four years, Four years, well, what's a king doing? Well, he's building his palace. He's getting the supplies ready for the temple. He's doing other stuff, but he's not necessarily paying attention to what's going on over here. Absalom says to the king, Hey, uh, please let me go and pay my vow, which I have vowed to the Lord in Hebron, for your servant vowed a vow while lived in Geshur and Aram, saying, If the Lord will indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I'll offer worship to the Lord. king's like, All right, sounds good. Go in peace. So Absalom arose and went to Hebron. But Absalom sent secret messengers throughout all the tribes of Israel and said, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then say, Absalom is king in Hebron. With Absalom went 200 men from Jerusalem who were invited guests, and they went, not a 
exactly knowing what he had in mind. They went in their innocence and knew nothing. And while Absalom was offering the sacrifices, he sent for Ahithophel, that's a royal advisor of David, the Gileonite, David's counselor, from his city of Gilo. And get this, you've got to really pay attention. The conspiracy grew strong. It is huge. And the people with Absalom kept on increasing. It's getting more and more power for this guy. The messenger all of a sudden comes to David and says, Oh, we are in trouble. The hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. And David said, Whoa, I know what this guy is like. I know what happened to his brother. We got to get out of Dodge fast. And David said to all his servants who were with him, Arise, let us flee, or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us quickly and bring us down to ruin and strike the city with the edge of the sword. And the king's servant said to the king, Behold, your servants are ready to do whatever my lord decides. Then, in verse 16, the king goes out and all his household after him. And this is a, probably a big mistake, and you can read the rest of the text and find out why. He left ten concubines behind to keep the house. And the king went out and all the other people after him. And they halted at the last house. And all the servants passed by, all the Cherethites and Pelethites and all the 600 Gittites who'd followed him from Gath passed on before the king. Now, in the next section, this is why I say God's multicultural God. Here's a really cool dude that I want to introduce you to. His name is Ittai the Gittite. I love this guy. He's awesome. The king said to Ittai the Gittite, why do you go along with us? You're not even one of us. What are you doing? Probably this is one of his paid bodyguards. Back then, just like today in, say, Uganda, you don't want someone from the local area to guard your house. Why? Because if someone from their family or clan or tribe comes and they're your guard and they say, hey, I'm hungry, I need to go in there, their family member is obligated to say, well, okay, your family, come on in. <laughs> you know. So you intentionally stay at a compound that's recruited guards from other parts of the country so that no family obligations can be leveraged to get inside your royal residence. That's what uh, David, King David was doing here. He's got this Gittite guarding him. And he's like, look, your job's done. <laughs> you're dismissed. For you're a foreigner and also an exile from your home. You, you came only yesterday. Shall I take you and make you wander about since I go I know not where? Go back, take your brothers with you, and may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness. By the way, that's covenant love. That's the covenant of Yahweh to you. But Ittai answered the king. This is awesome. As the Lord lives, that's Yahweh, capital L-O-R-D. That's, I'm calling on your specific deity, not one of my own deities, not one of my culture's pagan idols, but your specific God, and as my Lord, in other words, you, my boss, lowercase, the king lives, wherever my Lord the king shall be, whether for death or for life, there also your servant will be. Either by my death or by my life, I don't care. Amen. Man, that is awesome. <laughs> that dude rocks. And David's like, okay, <laughs> have it your way. Go on, pass on. Ittai the Gittite passed on all his men and little ones and family with him. And everybody's weeping and weeping and weeping and crying because the king is 
in big trouble. This is his lowest, 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 lowest point. You know, he's had Bathsheba. He's had his son murdered. He's had all this other stuff. He is at the bottom right now. The conspiracy has grown strong. The Absalom's numbers are increasing. He has been effectively thrown out of power. All of God's promises seem null. Everything God promised, it doesn't look like it right now, does it? Are there times in your life when God's promises don't seem true to you? (laughs) That's how it was for David. And here he is. And it's really cool. Those of you who have read the New Testament, particularly around the time of the Passion Week and the Triumphal Entry, may notice something here. It says, David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping. It didn't quite say, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. But here it is, the Messianic figure weeping over the holy city. Hmm, interesting. As he went barefoot with his head covered and all the people who were with him, Covered their heads as they went. Now that is a cool story, huh? (laughs) What are you going to do with that, preacher? Well, here it is. We're talking about David's enemy and his character, his success, and ultimately his ultimate defeat. And what do I see first of all? Well, there's two kinds of enemies out there. And you probably already know this. But in this story, they're represented as Philistines and and, uh, Absaloms. Who are the Philistines? Philistines are those guys who come out in the open and are just like, hey, you want to fight? <laughs> you dirty rascal, bring it. <laughs> you know, They're pretty obvious. Those are the type of people you, you go up to and you might say, well, you don't have to guess how so-and-so is feeling. <laughs> you know where they stand. That's that kind. Then there's the other kind, the Absalons, and they're not nearly so open. They're the kind that would rather stab you in the back or whisper about you or walk around or go some other route. They can wait two years, four years, whatever. They don't care because they know what they're doing and eventually they're going to get you. (laughs) I'd much rather fight a Philistine any day. I don't know about you. (laughs) But give me an open fight over these behind-the-back, treacherous whatevers. But here is Absalom. He's like that and you see that he's also prideful because he has an entourage. He hires people to go in front of him and call out how great he is. He uses criticism you know, he said, well, if the king really knew what he was doing, he'd have somebody here to judge you. <laughs> you ever see your enemies do that? He uses flattery. He says to the people, oh, your case is so valid, man. You would win that. If anybody had any brain, they would surely listen to you. <laughs> oh, yeah, that makes so much sense. I got it, dude. You're awesome. You're like, awesome. What? And he's patient, deadly patient. Two years, four years, this is one slippery, slimy son of a gun. And he's successful. That's point one. Point two, he's successful. You know, the conspiracy grew strong. Here's what's ironic about it. I want you to pay really close attention to this. God lets him be successful. Could God have stopped him? Yes. Why? I don't know. Ask the infinite counsel of almighty sovereign God. But for some reason, even in the lives of God's anointed Messiah, his chosen leader, he allows evil to prosper. And Absalom is prospering. He's getting an entourage. People are following him. The king is out from every appearance. This guy is winning. Four years of success and a significant following up to the point of loss. 
The conspiracy grew strong. Evil appears to be winning at this point. And yet, we have this amazing promise that the Lord's enemies will lose. Always, always, 100% of the time, God's enemies will lose. Even if you are burned at the stake, God's enemies will lose. <laughs> Even if you are crucified on the cross, God's enemies will lose. Even if our church burns down and we are scattered to the four corners of the globe, God's enemies will lose all the time. Why? Well, the Lord is ordained. The Lord is ordained. It actually says that in 2 Samuel 17, verse 14. This is something you need to chase down on your own, but there's two counselors, one named Hushai, another Ahithophel. Ahithophel is that one I pointed out earlier. He said he, he sort of, he crossed the line. He went from David over. He betrayed his master and went over to the other side. There's actually reasons for that, and the Bathsheba thing has something to do with it. So you can look that up for extra credit if you want. But anyways, Ahithophel and Hushai are basically undercover double agents trying to advise Absalom on what to do. And Ahithophel is going to lose, even though his advice would have caused um, Absalom to win. And the reason is, is because God determined that Absalom would lose. If Absalom would have fallen Ahithophel's, or followed Ahithophel's advice, Absalom would have won. But God determined to make him lose. So here's what it says. Verse 14. And Absalom and all the men of Israel said, The counsel of Hushai, the archetype, is better than the counsel of Ahithophel. For the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel, so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. So essentially, the enemy is going to lose. Why? Because God decided. That's it. There's no other explanation. Strategically, militarily, you know, in every other way, Absalom should have been successful. The only reason he wasn't is because God sends help from some very unexpected places. And this is pretty cool. This is when it ties into some of the other stuff, kind of Lord of the Rings-ish. Um, there's a couple different places that you would never believe that David finds help. The first place is from the house of Saul. Now, why in the world would he get help from the house of Saul? Wasn't Saul the previous king that, like, was trying to kill him? And yet, all of a sudden, Saul's house is helping David. Why? Well, for the kindness that he showed to them after he was given the throne, one of Saul's servants comes back around and resupplies David when they're out in the wilderness and basically about to starve to death. And one of Saul's servants brings him, brings David some food and supplies. And David's like, why are you helping me? And like, hey, we're on your team. Don't worry. We're loyal. Then, here's, so I'm, I'm skipping that next slide, 16. I just summarized it. Then here's the cool part that I want to remind you of. We talked about uh, when David battled the Philistines earlier. And I drew this out in chapter 5, but I want to show it to you again because it's really cool. It says, the Philistines came up yet again. This is when he was fighting the Philistines. So this is flashback. And spread out in the valley of Rephim. And when David inquired of the Lord... God answered him and said this, Don't go up and fight. Go around to the rear and come against them opposite the balsam trees. Why? 
or when? When? When do we attack? Well, when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees, then rouse yourself, for the Lord has gone out before you to strike down the army of the Philistines. And what happens? Remember? All of a sudden, the footsteps of the army of the host of God are marching through the trees, and David's men get up, leave their camp, and chase these guys down and win. Cool. <laughs> that was awesome. Why? Well, David's going to remember this later, by the way, in the Psalms, and I'm going to just show you this real quick. He says, the king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength, but the Lord looks down from heaven. He sees the children of man. And Job chapter 5 says he frustrates the devices of the crafty. Who would a crafty be? Well, I think I know. So that their hands achieve no success and the schemes of the wily are brought to a quick end. So what does David do? He does what Job does. To God I commit my cause who does great and unsearchable marvelous things without number. So even when David is at the depths of his despair, this is one of the coolest things about him. He's trusting God. I mean, he knows he messed up. He confessed his sin. He's on the run for his life. But even now, he's believing that God would be faithful to his promises. Even when it looks like God is totally abandoned him, that he's given up on everything he said he'd do for David. You know that whole throne thing? Uh, never mind. I gave it to Absalom who slept with your concubines. <laughs> That's not very cool. Well, sure enough, God is faithful. What I don't understand, I think it's pretty cool. What's with those trees? I mean, there's something about that tree, isn't there? Just keeps cropping up again. Well, happened with the Philistines. I don't suppose it happened again, do you? I don't know. Second Samuel chapter 18, when finally this whole thing's resolving itself and David's going to fight Absalom and their armies are coming together and this is now the, the final battle says the battle spread over the face of all the country and the forest devoured more people that day than the sword. Hmm. I guess Tolkien didn't think of that one, did he? Where? How? What? You should try reading some of the commentators on this. They don't know. <laughs> Somehow the trees attacked <laughs> and the bad guys died. It happened to the Philistines, it happens with Absalom, and there's just something about those trees. So here we are, recapping that spot, and then I'll summarize it and bring it home to you. Look, David's got an enemy, he's got two different kinds. He's got Philistines, he's got Absaloms, he's got open confrontation, he's got subversive, stabby-in-the-back conspiracy. His enemy is very successful, they grow strong to the point of total victory, and yet the Lord has ordained. The Lord has ordained, the Lord has ordained help from unexpected places like Saul's household or of all things, trees. Trees, okay? So what about believers? Well, my guess is you can already make this application. We have enemies as well, both open and subversive. And the fight really, I think, in our culture is more subversive than open. I think we face all these unseen messages and evil spirits and demons all the time, although no one's cutting open chickens and causing you to dance and asking for rain, there's quite powerful effects of the enemy at work in our culture. 
And you don't have to look very far to see that. So the Apostle Paul says it like this in Ephesians. He says, look, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and against authorities, cosmic powers over the present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. And just like Absalom, they do the same thing, man. They get an entourage. They try to puff themselves up. They make themselves look big. They use flat, flattery, criticism, and everything else. And they're very, very patient. And if they're successful, what will happen is they can get you to believe that all is lost. If you've come to a point where you're like, yep, there's no hope. That means the enemy is winning. And you're in the wrong place. Don't forget, you're in Christ. You are not there. You're in a different spot. You are in Christ. So all is not lost. If you're in Christ, all is never lost. So the enemy lies. The enemy tries to trip you up. The enemy tries to trick you. He wants you to think that God doesn't care. Don't raise your hands, but how many of you have said, yeah, I guess God doesn't care. The text says the Lord ordained. I don't know why the opposition grows strong. He lets it happen with Absalom. I don't know why evil happens, but God allows it in his infinite wisdom and grace. But what he does when that is happening is he sends outside help. Some sort of help to us that we never could have got on our own. And all of a sudden, whether it's the trees or old enemies or friends you forgot about or someone you never expected, all of a sudden they're coming in and you're like, Oh, Lord, where did that come from? I don't know. The trees are moving. The Holy Spirit's at work. And what happens, just like with David's enemy and our enemy, is that God promises his ultimate defeat. Even though we were dead, I mean dead, like we lost. Colossians says we lost. Colossians 2.13 says, even though you were dead in your trespasses and sin, the enemy killed you, even though you were dead, God won, how? In verse 14, by canceling the debt that stood against us and, oh wait, there's that tree again. Why do they keep popping up all over the place? He nailed it to the cross. And then he disarmed the rulers and authorities. There's a slide here. Put them to open shame by triumphing them over, uh, by triumphing over them. So just like with David, the Lord has ordained that your enemy will lose in the end. Now, that's kind of a big overarching picture of the grand scheme of things, but how do I play that out in my daily life? Here's uh, the, the application for you. Um, first of all, from David's life, you can see that when he sins, he's miserable. So the most obvious application is don't sin. Like, don't do it. I don't care how good it looks or what the enemy's lie says or whatever else. It's going to make you miserable. Now, will God forgive you? Yes. But does that mean he removes the consequences? No. You might have to live with the consequence of that sin the rest of your life. Will God still win in the end? Absolutely. Look at David's life. David sinned with Bathsheba, but God still gets him back to the throne. Yet David is miserable. <laughs> He's absolutely miserable because of what he did. If you don't want to be miserable, don't sin. If you want to enjoy your life, obey Christ. 
It's that simple. Now, it doesn't mean you won't suffer, but the suffering will be of a different kind. In the one sense, you know, hey, I brought it on myself. Man, this stinks, but I deserve it. <laughs> That's one kind. And the other is the kind that says, I am suffering for the joy of Jesus, and I get to delight in this because this brings him glory. <laughs> That's a good suffering. It's a totally different thing. My advice to you is if you want to suffer, suffer the good way, <laughs> not the bad. So first of all, don't sin. Second of all, it'll, it'll make you miserable. Second of all, reconcile. In other words, make every effort you can to reconcile as fast as possible. Don't delay. David leaves his relationship with his son unreconciled, and that root of bitterness just builds and builds and builds and builds, and all of a sudden, Absalom does his thing. What'd you expect? You guys never have got along anyways. It had to come to blows eventually. You want to fix it, you need to reconcile. Now, reconciliation is hard. David could say, well, this guy's off over in Hebron, and, you know, so I can't really talk to him. Anytime I call, he never picks up the phone, so I guess I'm off the hook, right? No. To reconcile, you have to purposely put yourself in their path. That may mean you have to go out of your way. You know? It's not enough just to say, well, we wrote him a letter. I guess that's done. (laughs) They don't have to answer your letter. Somehow you have to get in their path. Now, eventually you could get in their path and they can still go the other way and then it is on them and it's not on you and you pray for a heart of repentance in their heart. That's all you can do. But for you, the New Testament says, make every effort, make every effort, make every effort to maintain the unity of the bond of peace. Put yourself in their path, go out of the way because if you're leaving something unsaid, especially if it's in the start of your marriage or wherever, that's just going to fester, 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 and eventually it's going to blow up. And if it doesn't, they're going to go to their deathbed or you're going to go to yours and you're both going to be miserable and regret it. So get her done. Get out of the way. Number one, don't make yourself miserable. Don't sin. Number two, reconcile. Number three, leave room for God to work. You know, Absalom thinks he's going to fix things. He's telling everybody, hey, it's not right. I'll take care of it. Even though he seems to be patient in plotting against his father, he's impatient in waiting for God. Give God room to work. If you try to take things into your own hand too soon, you're going to mess it up. Don't do that. Absalom did what he thought was best, but as you pursue David, what does it always say before David's successful? David, what? Inquired of the Lord. You know, he inquired of the Lord. We pointed that out a few sermons ago all the time. Dear God, what do you want me to do? God says, wait till you hear the trees and then go. Huh? Just trust me. (laughs) Take some stones and go fight him. What? Trust me. Inquire of the Lord. Ask. Lord, should we go up and fight this fight? Don't take it in your own hands. That's a recipe for disaster. Inquire of the Lord. God, what do you want us to do? And then go forward in faith or wait. But don't do it on your own. So, Don't sin, reconcile, leave room for God to work. And finally, it's an encouragement. Look, even though the conspiracy may grow strong, the enemies of the Lord will never win. Just like with David, so too with us. Even if we're burned at the stake and all goes, you know, God's enemies lose. It's a guarantee. He's sovereign. He's powerful. He's over all things. They can't win. They can't. It's impossible. The devil's already tried that. He's done. Didn't go so well for him. So trust, believe that God steers the ship and he will punish the wicked and reward the righteous. 
at the end of the day, God wins. And if you're on his team, you do too. I think it's summed up well in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. It says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. In other words, the Lord has ordained. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of times to unite all things in heaven and on earth in him. This is the picture of reconciliation. This is the absence of racial strife. This is the absence of war. This is the presence of eternal peace. And it's all to be found in Christ. Your job right now is to do your very best not to mess up. But even if you do, don't worry. God still wins in the end. Better for you if you don't. But at the end of the day, it's no, it's no big thing because God's got it all under control. Blessed be the God and Father of our only Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for your incredible goodness and grace. We worship you for who you are and all that you've done. And we trust that you truly win in the end. Lord, that's hard to say. Sometimes we look around and what we see does not look like victory. It looks bad. It looks like a mess. It looks like we lost. We may be running for our life or at the end of our rope or entirely given up. But Jesus, help us to trust in you. To look our enemy square in the eyes and say, you lose, go to hell. Thank you for Christ's victory on the cross. May his eternal victory reign in our hearts and lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.